Well, welcome. Have you ever asked yourself, do we have to go to church? Why do we go to church? I've asked myself that, and I work at a church, right? There, and I remember vividly as a kid when my parents started taking us to church, we would rate, my sisters and I, the church, by the quality of donuts they put out. And if there were no donuts, or if there was a charge for donuts, that's just off the list, right? And so if you notice, we, we have free baked goods every, every week to be very strategic about that. But, but if you ever wondered, like I've wondered, couldn't you sing and pray and give to worthy causes and even grow in friendships with other people and grow in self-discovery and do so many of the things that you do in and through a church without the church? The answer is absolutely you could. And in an age where so many things no longer require in-person event style consistency, gym memberships, for example, how many of you have dropped a gym membership to work out at home? A lot of you yoga ladies, I see a guy over there, right? There's so many things that work that way. Why shouldn't church work that way? And the trends in North America are pointing that way. In this series, what I'd like us to consider is the big primary purpose of church and why it is different than you might think and why we should go and be a part of church. This isn't a series meant to manipulate or coerce or build our brand organization. It's really meant to, if we're doing it right, to really look at God's word and really pull out the meaning there. And we're calling it kind of a funny title, Don't Move the Lampstand. Remember this from Pixar? the little lamp. It is not really the one that the Bible talks about, but there is a lampstand in, uh, in the scriptures in the Old Testament. And if you're not a Bible reader, you need to understand that God's people, the Israelites, were on a journey out of slavery into freedom and the plans that he had for his people. And on that journey, he gave them something called the tent of meeting. And it was where his presence dwelled with the people. It was completely dark with layers and layers of canvas and only the priests were allowed to go in and there was symbolic furniture in the tent and two of the most symbolic pieces of furniture were a, a specific table, a table like this, and a lampstand. The lampstand actually looked more like a menorah. It, was, it had a stand and then seven candles, seven being the ancient world's number for completeness and wholeness. And what's fascinating is in Exodus 25, verse 30 and 37, we read this. Put the bread of the presence on this table to be before me. This is God, Yahweh speaking, at all times. Then make it seven lamps and set them up so that they may light the space in front of it. What in the world is that all about? Isn't it true that symbols are powerful and the right symbol can point us to reality? The wrong symbol can point us away from reality. Think about the Nazi swastika and how powerful that was used in World War II to draw people away from their own humanity and turn them against their fellow brothers and sisters. But the right symbol, a true, honest, pure symbol, like bread, for example, a universal symbol of provision, unless you're gluten-free, sorry about that. We do have gluten-free communion available, so we, we have not forgotten about you. But bread is a symbol that universally draws people towards 
a good reality, a true reality. And in the Old Testament, the bread of the presence was used to represent and symbolize the very presence of God. Even though God is transcendent and bigger and vast and holy and, and we're smaller and we've rebelled against this God and there's a broken relationship, it's like God saying, the bread of the presence will represent my love for you and my promise to always be with you. And so when you make this tent, be sure to put a lamp, a lamp stand, and shine it so the bread is always being illuminated. In this series, we're going to say, with this business of bread, lamp stands, and the question, why church? that the bread of the presence actually represents Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said this. He was an Israelite himself, and he came and he said, I am the bread of life. And when you partake in this bread, it's going to change your life. So he's actually taking Exodus imagery, and he's saying, you know that bread of the presence? That's me. And it's a promise to say that I am with you. What's more intriguing is the role of the lampstand for our conversation. The lampstand represents the people of God, the church. And so you might deduce, if we ask the question, why church, why go to church, why be a part of a church? Well, church is all about shining the light on who Jesus really is, on the point and the purpose of all reality, that God has not abandoned us. God, in fact, created us, and moreover, God is with us. You might say it this way if you're taking notes. The church exists to show people who Jesus Christ is. That's what we're about. Now, some of us have grown up in church context where, where this was not communicated and it was not modeled. In fact, we thought church was about the potluck afterwards in the basement that smells like water damage, right? And, or we thought church was about being super uncomfortable, wearing those shoes you don't really like to wear, the outfit that a kid wouldn't feel comfortable in, and sitting on a hard bench and being very still Well, some guy like me went on and on and on. I remember growing up in a Lutheran church uh, that was more traditional, and we were little kids, and my middle sister, Michelle, in the middle of the sermon, this guy kept going. She got up right on the pew, and she says, you be quiet now. <laughs> I mean, it was really embarrassing, and even as a kid, I was like, wow, that's a bold move, Michelle. <laughs> but there was kind of a collective gasp where everyone's like, seriously, land the plane, bro. I don't know what your church experience was like growing up. Maybe you had a bad church experience. Sadly enough, uh, demonic forces and the sin in people's own heart often have resulted in the church even abusing people. Maybe you've had a really terrible church experience. You have church PTSD. Maybe it was a church where you weren't allowed to ask questions. It was just sit still, be uncomfortable. Being uncomfortable is a virtue. And the purpose of the church is the potluck afterwards, the lutefisk, the whatever we do. Or, or it's the community service projects that we do. Or the purpose of the church is to put on a really good pageant, and you better play your part well. Or the purpose of the church is to make sure we do it the way it's always been done. Or the purpose of the church is to make sure that we have enough money in the offering to pay the bills 
and to keep things moving. But why keep things moving, you might have asked, growing? Why do we do this, you might have asked? Don't ask questions. This is what we do. For you Mandalorian fans, this is the way. Any reference there? No? This is the way. Put your helmet on and just soldier up. This is the way. Well, if you grew up like that, you need to understand the purpose of the church is to shine the light on the showbread, to show people who Jesus Christ is. And even though our tendency is to get way off base, it never was anything other than this. You know, a lot of things in life have a primary purpose, if you think about it, and a secondary purpose. Small groups at our church, we always say, need to have a primary purpose, and that primary purpose is to help each other become like Christ. But there can be lots of secondary purposes in a small group. For example, we have a new women's group that meets uh, on Saturday mornings, the first Saturday of the month. We just met, and you can join that, ladies, if you'd be a part of it. And they have a secondary purpose of connecting with other women here at Mercy Road. Going skiing or snowboarding at Buck Hill that is not actually the primary purpose. Skiing's great. Snowboarding's fun. Actually, it's not fun. I don't like snowboarding at all. I tried it once, and I was terrible at it, and I just slammed my face into the snow, and I'll never do it again. But what I'm saying is, if the purpose, the primary purpose is there, then the secondary purpose can thrive. Skiing is great if the primary purpose is to come together with other men and say, how do we encourage each other as followers of Jesus Christ to become more like Jesus Christ so that other people would look at our lives and our lives would essentially illuminate who Jesus Christ is? If that's the primary purpose, then skiing is not just skiing. And snowboarding is not just snowboarding. And eating in a chalet is much more substantial than just eating and enjoying a beverage in a chalet. You have a primary purpose on your life, whether you know it or not. And your primary purpose shares the primary purpose of the church. You are meant to shine a light on who Jesus is. Now, some of us, if we're skeptics, that sounds crazy, and I get it. I, I'm skeptical by nature. And some of us, even if we're believers, that sounds a little over the top. Isn't that a little too much? It's not too much if the story is true, if reality all hinges on the claim, the true claim, that God made you and made all of this. And we rebelled against God, our creator, and God became a human being to redeem it all, to die in our place, to live the life we can't live, and to train us into his Christ-likeness image, his character, so we think and act and feel like Jesus, and that we will rise again, and death is not the end. If all this is true, my friends, what other purpose would be higher than shining the light on this truth? Now, I think every human and individual and every generation in human history has asked the question at some point, God, are you really with me? Are you sure? Some of you today, if you're honest, you don't feel like God's with you. You feel like God forgot about you. Or God loves you, but he doesn't really like you. And you point to things in your life and you say, if God was really with me, this is not how that would have went down. And he wouldn't have let me go through that experience. And why can't I have victory over this reoccurring sin in my life? God surely can't be with me. And yet the scriptures say something very different. The scriptures say no matter what desert you're navigating, 
there is a metaphorical tent of his presence and you are invited in and you need to just look at the lampstand and what the lamp is shining on. It's shining on bread and the bread represents the very presence and provision of God. It's saying, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And you don't have to worry. Maybe for some of us, that, that's really all we need to hear today. But if that's you, don't stand up and tell me to be quiet now. Yes, the right symbol can direct people to reality. We have lots of symbols, don't we? Many of you, many of you came in purple and gold wearing a symbol. And that symbol is a symbol of hope. Hoping to live, relive the Minnesota miracle, right? I, I tell the story at my own risk because I'm not a football person. And so in God's ironic universe, I got invited to the Minnesota miracle game in 2016, the night before, through a, a colonel I served with in Iraq. He said, hey, you want to go to this game? I said, ah. He's like, why are you even hesitating? This is going to be the biggest game ever. Oh, really? Are they, who are they playing? Who are they playing? They're playing the Saints. It's like the whole champion. Yeah, sure, I'll go, okay. We're seated 11 rows up. I mean, Diggs, Diggs caught the pass, right? <laughs> Mary's with me. She's like, I don't know, we're the same. When he, when he caught that pass and he ran back for the, the touchdown and, and, you know, the whole stadium just erupted, I almost got hit by his helmet as he threw it, right? It was that close. And let me tell you, sociologically, what an experience that was. I've never seen worship like I've seen in that, that stadium, <laughs> ever. And I've never seen lament. And it first was lament, because it looked like everything was falling apart, and there's no way we're going to win this. And then all of a sudden, eruptive, just, it's like what you hear here when we really kind of let it go, and we're, we're worshiping when Ari's leading us, but if you had a microphone for every single person in our church, it still wouldn't be that loud, right? And it lasted for no less than 45 minutes. 45 minutes of pure, unadulterated screaming and celebration. And then it took an hour and 20 minutes for me to get out of the, the stadium. And as I left, there was a, a large woman, completely painted in purple with horns. And she's just standing there at the exits like this. And tears have cut streams down her purple face. And she's just repeating with joy, I think, but just like crying at the same time, this never happens to us. This never. And pe people are just high-fiving her on the way out, and I'm just looking like, this is incredible. I thought I knew what worship was. I thought I knew what heart change was. I thought I knew what devotion was and a feeling of gratitude, but this has now been redefined in my experience. Sociologically, I've just never felt anything like this. And if we get that worked up, over a football team? What if there's a reality that's a billion times better than that? I mean, you got to think about it from God's point of view. God literally made everything that's worth enjoying and cheering about. And, and he watches over a creation that he inserted himself into in the form of a human being and lived in abject poverty and suffered in all kinds of ways to identify with us and was tortured to death on our behalf and rose again and promises us the one thing that we want even more than a Super Bowl ring in Minnesota, eternal life, love that lasts. And he's looking at it all and he's seeing, he's looking at the offer and the invitation 
And he's looking at your Instagram feed and he's like, you get more excited about that recipe with avocado than the gospel, <laughs> than the good news that you're gonna live forever in his presence? You get more excited when, when the lamp points on a certain political cause than when it points on my son? You get more jazzed about a campaign to make sure Harry Potter books are not in school than pointing to the very presence, the showbread, the, the living incarnate God among you who loves you and will never leave you. <clears throat> Just like I couldn't fully understand the level of excitement for Vikings fans in 2016 at the Minnesota Miracle Game. I mean, I, I could perceive it, but I couldn't fully understand it. I wonder if God perceives our excitement and what we like on Facebook and love on Facebook and what really jazzes us. And he's just wondering, why has my church moved the lampstand? Why don't they understand the gift that they've been given? This is not me shaming us about getting jazzed about beating the saints. It'd be great if we have a miracle part two. And God is the giver of every good gift, and he delights, I know he delights, when we delight in things. My boys and I are making a replica world of Star Wars out of, like, modeling material that we got at um, Hobby Lobby. I should take stock out in Hobby Lobby. It's expensive, right? And, and I mean, my boys' little eyes delight when we're making these little arches and mountains and little tiny trees, and now we can play Legos on that, and we even spray-painted it with the the stone uh, texture spray paint, and you should come over and check it out. It's really cool. But the whole time I'm looking at them and I'm thinking, these little boys were made to delight in something much bigger, more lasting than cray paper and spray paint and a little modeling universe. In fact, their imaginations, the simple fact that they can get that jazzed about a modeled little world would point to the simple fact they're made in God's image. They're called to create and shape and enjoy and steward. And it's just a little symptom of the fact that they are made for a greater, greater glory, that they understand at some intuitive level like you and I do that Jesus is the source and the savior of reality itself. If that is true, if that is true, it really does direct the purpose and it really does answer the question, why do we do the church thing? If you're taking notes, uh, thirdly, I'd like us to suggest in this series, whatever we do as a church, Mercy Road, and whatever you do as a, as a person, if you are a follower of Jesus, don't move the lampstand. Don't move away from your primary purpose. Let's not. And there's lots of ways we can do this, right? We can focus on really minor things, can't we, as a church? And, and an unbelieving world finds that unbelievable. They're saying, so your claim is that human beings in general are fractured by sin and God in his great mercy and love and justice paid the whole tab by dying in your place and he welcomes you into this new kind of life where he's going to transform your character from the inside out and then when you die, death isn't the end. It's actually the beginning of the best things that are yet to come and you're focusing on that? And that's what gets you fired up. And this is what makes all the difference. And this is what makes you in and out. Reggie Joyner, a theologian, put it this way. The church is not called to illuminate everything. 
its light should be concentrated on showing others who God is. God's intention is for the church to be placed strategically in culture in order to show himself to the world. Anytime the church becomes ineffective in its role to illuminate Christ, it must rekindle and reinvent itself around its core purpose. Sometimes I wonder if we need to rekindle and reinvent ourselves as a larger church. Did you know, I read in Christianity Today recently, that in general, Christianity is shrinking in America and Canada and Australia and in all of Europe. But it is exploding in South and Central America. Africa is very close to having over half of the world's population of Christians. Asia is growing in Christians. Com communist dictators who have tried to stomp out Christianity and every other religion find to their frustration that it flourishes every time they stomp at it. Why? Maybe in a world and in a reality where we don't have so many possibilities of what we could shine the light on, it becomes painfully clear to us that our primary purpose is to shine the light on Jesus Christ, to illuminate this simple and central fact that God is with us, he's for us, no matter how our circumstances look. Wherever you look in human history, whenever Christianity gets in bed with power, it gets watered down. People start to for forget the primary purpose. They start to think that church is about building buildings or building brands or converting people to their own secondary preferences. They start to think that church is just about dinners in the basement or pageants or traditions that were in one century and are out the next. And they forget that church has been and will be and will always be about the creator, Jesus Christ, who loves you and knew you before you were born, who has a good plan for your life and is pleading you to walk into the steps of that good plan, the good works he's prepared in advance for your life, who defeated death itself. And these poverty-stricken third world and second world and developing nations and countries and regions, they seem to be really open to the fact that even though my life is hard right now, you're telling me what? You're saying the God of the universe isn't too busy for me? He wants something for me, not just something from me. He loves me. He likes me. And Christianity just spreads like a wildfire. We have a strategic moment in our lifetimes in the West, in the first world country, to either move the lampstand away from the primary purpose of illuminating Jesus Christ to the world or putting the lampstand even closer. And you, in your behavior, in your life, in your actions, in your attitudes, and, and mine as well, will determine what happens with that. If our church is truly about Jesus, so that's kind of the premise we're saying in this series, Church is kind of really centrally just about Jesus. It's about making him known. It's about being in relationship with Jesus. Who wants to be in relationship with you? Here, here are some 
little sign markers, and we're going to spend the rest of this series in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is a long list of things that the early church does. They gather in homes. They gather in temple court to worship like we do on a weekly basis. They share things with each other when others are in need. They pray together. They eat together. They do a lot of things together, and we're going to look at a lot of the things they do as a model and a pattern of activity for the things that we do, but we're going to do it through the lens of this not moving the lampstand imagery that we get in the 25th chapter of Exodus and again in the second chapter of Revelation. We'll go into that more later. But, but here's a, a high executive summary. If our church is truly about Jesus, lost people will find Jesus through Mercy Road. That offends our modern sensibilities. What do you mean lost? You can't call people lost. Of course you can. I've been lost more than most of you in this room. I have a terrible sense of direction. I could barely make it through infantry basic training and map reading. I just am not good at it, right? I, I sometimes make the wrong turn on the way home. I've been lost so much in a very literal sense that I have deep, deep compassion for those who are lost in a spiritual sense. It's not a shame to be lost. It's just an unfortunate reality to be lost. What is a lost person? A lost person is someone who occasionally lays in bed at night and wonders, God, are you even real? Is there even a God? A lost person is someone who has put all the poker chips in on their career and, and their career went well and, and yet they have this hollow feeling because it never delivered. A lost person is someone who keeps looking for the next fix, the next hit, whether that be power, pleasure, sex, money, achievement, beauty, recognition. And every time they get what they want, it's like sand that goes right through their hands. Lost people are those who, as they age, they resign themselves. It's all a big accident. And I guess I did what I did, and I have some regrets, but who knows? I preach at the Rivers uh, Assisted Living Center in uh, Burnsville every week, and it's really interesting because about 30 of them gather for chapel on Thursdays. And I, for the most part, everyone who comes to chapel seems to be born again, believers in Jesus Christ who have received his forgiving love, and, and they're all senior citizens, right? But I've interacted with lots of other people in the rivers. It's a really big community, a lot more than 30 people. And I see it in their eyes, my friends. The people who I look into their eyes in chapel, they have a vibrancy, they have a hope, a joy, an unsinkable joy, because they know the best is yet to come, because they know it's all about Jesus. They know that their life's major purpose is to shine the light on Jesus and to have a relationship with Jesus. And they know that it's not about their performance. It's all grace. But those who don't come to chapel, not all of them, but a lot of them who I'll just have small conversation with, I just don't want that for you guys. They don't have hope. Their, their biggest interest is what's for dinner. And you know, as you age, some of your taste buds kind of degenerate. And the river seems like a really nice facility, but, you know, senior living facilities typically aren't on the page of Culinary Magazine, right? 
And so if it's all about what's for dinner as opposed to what's spiritually going to nourish us, the, the simple presence of God in Jesus Christ, as we age, we're going to have a decrescendo of joy. Have you ever met people who, as they age, all they want to talk about is how great it used to be? Do you remember the movie Napoleon Dynamite? Ridiculous film. But there was this guy in there, Uncle Rico. And Uncle Rico was still living in high school because he was benched at that strategic moment as a quarterback when they could have taken state. And so he just walks around, and he's probably only in his 30s, but it's, he might as well be in his 90s, and he, he just walks around, and he just keeps muttering to, to himself, if coach would have put me in, we would have we taken state. And then I'd be in a hot tub with my soulmate, and then he starts listing off all these things <laughs> that would have happened if only he would have won state, if only coach would have put him in. And then he starts saying crazy stuff, like I bet you I could throw this football over those mountains to his younger nephews, and they look at him like, Crazy Uncle Rico. I don't want you to be crazy Uncle Rico at 30 or 90. I don't want that for me, but that's actually what happens when the light of the purpose of our life shines on anything other than the primary purpose for which we were created, which is Jesus Christ. Your heart will be restless until it comes to find its rest in the forgiving love of God. So yes, lost people will find Jesus through this church. And when they no longer are, we need to reinvent ourselves as a church. Luckily, over the last three years, we've seen a number of baptisms, over 30 baptisms. Many of those are people who were completely lost before. Some of those are reaffirmations of their baptisms. And so we're seeing this. Oasis DeVita, our partner ministry, we're seeing this. But not just lost people, found people, people who have already accepted the forgiving love of Jesus, will together, working together, become more like Jesus. Here's the thing. I know some of my kids' friends play hockey, and hockey seems to be one of the most time-intensive sports out there. Any hockey players out there? It's like you're practicing at 10 p.m., and the, the rink time is involved. And I look at a game like hockey, and if it's the case that you need to spend that much time together as a team getting better just to show up and be halfway competitive at hockey, look at what we're saying. Found people will become more like Jesus. Jesus was a sinless person. He was perfectly God and perfectly a human being. He was perfectly grace and perfectly truth. He loved well at all times, but he spoke the truth at all times. He was gentle, but he was strong. He was the ideal human being, and he is the model. Now, becoming like Jesus, my friends, is actually a bigger goal than becoming a good hockey team. It really is. Like, if your life depended on those two propositions, go play hockey. Luckily, it's not your effort that will transform you. It's the Holy Spirit within you, but you do have a part to play. And you just have to ask yourself, and I have to ask myself, in an age of consumerism where we want to mail it all in, where we don't want to show up, and this church does show up, so I'm not shaming us or anything like that. In an age like that, it would be so easy to put extraordinarily less actual effort into becoming like Jesus together as a community than our kids' coach demands of them to become a decent hockey player. If in a sport you showed up less than 50% of the time in person to practice, you're not gonna beat the Saints. 
we're not going to beat the saints. Miracles are not. Why do we think it's different? Becoming like Jesus Christ. And so don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you get extra credit points for showing up at church or that God loves you more. But God invites you and me to become more like Jesus. And have you noticed this little thing in you called selfishness and sin? Where sometimes you don't actually do the things that you hold other people to? And sometimes words come out of your mouth and you're like, wow, that was out of, I shouldn't have said that, I'm sorry. And sometimes when you get a little extra money, you think about giving it to someone who needs it, and you think about spending it on some trivial thing that you've wanted for a while, and you're like, that's a real tough debate. I win, I'm going to buy it for me. We are all subject to self-absorption and self-justification, self-reliance, and sin. And if we're going to become like Jesus together, we need God's Holy Spirit living in us, but we, it's a team sport, my friends. And so found people, if we're going to do this, there's implications that we need to do it together. And lastly, Mercy Road, if it's all about Jesus and not about something else, we're going to meet the needs of others significantly around us. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite theologians, but what, one thing that never came out until he was dead and gone was how generous he was. He made so much money off book sales, and it was noted after his death that he kept his very same smoking jacket, the one he had when he was a poor undergraduate. He never upgraded his wardrobe, and he just became a funnel for all these equivalent millions of dollars into orphanages, paying for people to go to seminary and become pastors, and all sorts of charities. He was just constantly letting his life become a conduit. And he resisted this temptation to become consumeristic. Now, am I saying you can never buy a new smoking jacket? You probably don't smoke a pipe, so it's an irrelevant metaphor. Of course you can have some nice things. But let's not kid ourselves. If we're not, as individual families and individual people and as a church together, significantly meeting needs in the community and world, this is what we've done. We have turned the light that is the church of Jesus Christ away from Jesus, and we've made it about something far less helpful, far less true. Eric and I will be flying to a global poverty summit for pastors. Sounds like a riveting time, right? I mean, you go to a nice hotel, and, and, and it's actually kind of difficult because the first day they talk about the state of global poverty, and they show slides, and they, they introduce you to little kids, and they talk about numbers of children who have died from starvation and disease. And then the second day is so powerful because they bring out sponsor children who were sponsored through World Vision who have grown up and who are doing amazing things. And no doubt they strategically picked the really impressive ones. So they're now like 23 and she's like, well, I just graduated from law school and I did this and now I'm like, I just reinvented like a water piping system for clean water. And and it's like, you know, yes, I grew up in a mud hut, but because I was a sponsored child and people wrote me letters, my life was completely different. My whole village is now thriving. And you're like, I, I have to go home and convince everyone in my church to have 10 sponsor kids. And the problem with us going there is we keep having to adopt these kids. And now we're, you know, at some level, it's just like you can't have 20 sponsor kids, or can you? The vision of the church, my friends, is so much better than potlucks in the basement or secondary purposes. 
It's to be a light that illuminates Jesus to a dying, lost, hurting world. It's to have an intimate love relationship with the creator of the universe. We need to do that together. And so this January, would you join us in this series as we unpack this primary purpose and as we do a purpose check together? Next week, we uh, will hear from Bill Boleyn, someone who has earned the right, faithful uh, 40 years of ministry to speak to us on how to make sure we don't move the lampstand. As we transition, I'd like us to now prepare our hearts for Holy Communion. On the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took the Passover bread that he had been taking every year at Passover since he was a little boy, and he turned to his disciples, and he said, do you see this bread? This is my body. It's a new covenant, a new promise. He basically said, I'm the symbol. I'm the reality that the symbol that you've been eating has always pointed to. And now I'm going to tell you what's behind the ability for us to be right with each other, for me to be present with you. My body's going to be broken for you. Take this and eat. After supper, as was customary for the Passover meal, he took this watered-down wine, and he passed it around, and he said, now this cup that has signified the, the blood that was shed of a sacrificial lamb that was painted above the doors of the houses in Egypt when God was releasing us from slavery, now you're going to see what the real reality that that has always pointed to. I'm going to be the lamb. And every time you take this wine, drink, remember that my blood will be shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. He's saying every sin, past, present, and future, everything you're ashamed of, every secret, the worst that human beings can do to one another and to themselves, it's going to be paid for in full because of about what I'm going to do. And every time you gather as my church and you partake in this meal, this symbolic meal, would you remind your hearts of that and would you realign your purpose? We're told to come to the table with a sense of reverence. If you're a non-believer today, and this, we're so glad that you're here. Continue to ask questions. Love to talk with you. Please don't feel the need to participate in that. It's not a lucky rabbit foot. It's not going to give you the lotto numbers or anything like that. Uh, this is something that essentially is saying, I'm in, Lord. I don't understand it all, but I'm in. If you are a believer with us, would you prayerfully let God bring to your conscience through his Holy Spirit the ways that you can change, can align to make your life shine on his more truly. And ask a board member to come up and we will be serving by intinction. That means you can take the bread and there is a bit of gluten-free wafers too. And then you can dip it in the juice.